Welcome once again to Radio in Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP Chapel Hill and Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 12 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio in Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio in Vivo is supported by the NC State University Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES, Center. The GES Center works to integrate scientific knowledge and public values, shaping the futures of biotechnology. Positioned at the nexus of science and technology, social sciences, and humanities, the center engages in collaborative research, education, and engagement by generating knowledge and fostering balanced and inclusive dialogue around emerging genetic engineering technologies and its products. Learn more by visiting the GES Center website, research.ncsu.edu GES, and follow them on Twitter at at GES Center NCSU. And Radio in Vivo is proud to welcome yet another underwriter, Gene-Centric Therapeutics, Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. Gene-Centric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at GeneCentric.com. Radio Envivo and WCOM thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. I'm the operator with my pocket calculator. I'm the operator with my pocket calculator. On this week's Radio Envivo, we visit the amazingly complex world of neurodegenerative diseases which include major afflictions such as Alzheimer's disease, ALS, 
and Parkinson's, and many other rarer conditions. Dr. Todd Cohen is working to unravel the molecular mechanisms behind neurodegenerative disorders with an eye toward developing much-needed new therapeutic approaches to these debilitating and often fatal diseases. Todd is an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at UNC Chapel Hill and a member of the UNC Neuroscience Center within the School of Medicine. He received a B.S. from Penn State University in 2000, his Ph.D. in Cell and Molecular Biology from Duke University in 2007, and he conducted his postdoctoral work at the University of Pennsylvania through 2013. He joined the UNC faculty in 2014. Todd Cohen, welcome to Radio In Vivo. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Ernie. It's it's great to be here. Well, Todd, before we dive into the deep, dark world of neurodegenerative diseases, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about your background and what set you on the path to where you find yourself today. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that uh, the thing that really set me on course to go and try to work on neurodegenerative disease was actually watching my grandmother succumb to the disease. Um, and she had Alzheimer's disease and had it over the course of 10 years. And I, I watched her degenerate. And I said to myself, I, I just don't understand how humans can undergo this devastating process. It just didn't make sense to me. Yeah. And so that was really, I'd say, one of the um, you know prominent moments where I thought, you know what, I think I could make a dent and try to understand why this happens, how it happens, and if we could try to develop therapies. I also felt like it was a tractable area, like there was room to to make discoveries in this area. I didn't feel that way about a lot of other diseases, and so here we are. Indeed. Well, one of the uh, interviews with you that I accessed uh, as I was preparing for our uh, conversation today, I was struck by your statement that you pursued specializing in neurodegenerative disorders because they're relatively simple compared to other conditions like cancer. Uh, to help us kind of dive into your research, would you elaborate on that concept? Yeah, sure. I, c- cancer and other diseases to me just struck me as, as very complicated. And I don't know, maybe it's just a, a simple-minded explanation, if anything. Because these, these do not strike me as not complicated that's right. diseases. I, I guess I felt like you know, Alzheimer's disease, for example, um, you accumulate, you know, essentially junk in the brain. Mm -hmm. And I could identify with that. There's, there's junk that we want to get rid of. And I think people generally agree, if you get rid of that junk, you will do better. And so I could identify with a goal of getting rid of these abnormal proteins that accumulate with age. I liked that concept because it was a defined goal. Other diseases didn't resonate with me that way. Cancer, for example, if you ever look at a, if anyone ever showed you a, a signaling pathway in cancer, it's just a horrendous yeah. hundreds of things, thousands of things that are happening. But I could identify with plaques and tangles. These are the things that accumulate in almost all, in every Alzheimer brain. And if you said to me, look, we just need to get rid of them, figure out why they form, and then figure out ways to get rid of them. That just seemed like a tractable problem and I, uh, we could tackle and I felt like it was a problem that if enough smart minds were dedicated to, that we could actually get rid of those things mm-hmm. and that a brain could stay 
you know, cognitively normal for much longer if we could get rid of them. And I still feel that way. Um, so that was sort of, you know, how I felt. I still feel that way. Do you think that at some point it will be possible even after an accumulation in the brain, uh, such as you refer to, mm-hmm. that the, that junk can be uh, cleaned out and people can be returned to normal cognitive? I think that it might be difficult if your neurons and your brain cells are dying. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, it's difficult to repopulate unless there's ways to, um, you know, stem cell therapies and things that can actually produce those cells again. Right. Until we can do that, I think the general thinking that I agree with is that once you've lost those cells that make up important regions of the brain, it's going to be hard to get them back. So what does that mean? Well, we probably have to intervene early. And so we probably want to look forward to therapies where we're intervening decades, maybe, prior to those cognitive symptoms that a lot of people with Alzheimer's disease have. Sure. And so that poses all kinds of other issues, some scientific and some not. Right. Healthcare, for example, what, who's going to provide support for uh, medications that you might want to take decades prior to symptoms? That's sort of issues that we're going to have to grapple with. And in in the world of of genetics, uh, you know, you always hear about you know people who have had their their uh, genomes sequenced, you know, may have proclivities toward these diseases that emerge from that sequencing. And one of the big ethical issues is, well, do you, do you want to know, and do you actually tell someone? Because right now, there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. So maybe in the future, that information becomes more valuable because there comes a point where there is something we can do about it to prevent that onset. That's right. And we're already, you know, companies like 23andMe. And and so, you know, if you have access to your own genetics, um, it's an ethical question of whether you would want to know. But if everybody wanted to know, maybe you could get those treatments prior to, um, you know, those symptoms, which I think is going to be key. Right. I remember, and I was going to ask you this question mm-hmm. much much later in the program, but here we are. So uh, many years ago, I, I actually had the opportunity to interview Dr. Alan Roses, mm-hmm. who I know you're probably familiar with. Uh, and he was the first uh, scientist to really uh, uncover the fact that Alzheimer's in particular had a genetic basis. And at the time, he was a total maverick mm-hmm. and was, was you know, just ostracized almost from the scientific community. But of course, he was proven to be correct. Uh, and he, one of the things he told me that I've never forgotten, and as I age, I start worrying about a little bit more. He said that as we all live longer these days, that eventually all of us would contract Alzheimer's that it's a part of the natural aging process. And I know that's, that's something you, you believe as well, right? Yeah, I think that um, this is a question that I just posed the other day to a class that I teach, is if we were to live out to 150 mm-hmm. or 200 or 300, if we just imagine for a moment, would everyone get Alzheimer's disease? I happen to have a relative, my wife has a relative who just turned 106. Wow. And Joe Newman, uh, if you're listening, um, you know, happy, happy birthday. Uh, and, you know, Joe um, is cognitively as sharp as he's ever been. 
And so it just raises this, you know, this, this, this really amazing idea that maybe you can live out to a very long, high quality of life. Now, will everyone eventually get the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease? Probably. But can we develop ways to stay cognitively normal in the face of those hallmarks? And we might be able to. Mm-hmm. So I actually am hopeful that we could live a cognitively normal life out to 150 sometime soon. If you think about it, in the early 1900s, we weren't living nearly as long as we are now. Um, now that we can live to our mid-80s, and now the number of centenarians is is amazing, yeah. right? So I think that it's it's endless what we're capable of. If we can prevent brain diseases and can also prevent heart issues and other things that end up killing us, right. maybe we can extend life to a, an, 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 a what would have been an absurd number, and that's I'm actually hopeful that we can do that. I know there, there are certainly plenty of people working on that, yeah. that very concept. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Todd, in your research pursuits, uh, you have focused much of your attention on two proteins that apparently go awry and play a r- major role in the major neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, one protein called TDP43, and the perhaps better known protein called tau. Uh, so I'd like to spend much of our conversation learning more about both of those bad actors. Uh, so why don't we start with TDP43? Uh, explain what happens when to TDP when it TDP43 when it malfunctions, and the physiological results of that. Yeah, TDP-43 was um, identified in 2006 as the real critical protein that's involved in a lot of neurodegenerative diseases, in particular ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease and also frontotemporal dementia. And at the time, this was sort of uh, an absurd idea that two diseases that seemed to be on different ends of a spectrum were actually tied together by a single protein, in this case TDP-43. So normally this protein, behave, when it behaves properly, it's confined to the nuclear compartment of the cell mm-hmm. and it regulates thousands of other proteins. And we need that. Our brains and our neurons need that. When TDP43 malfunction, malfunctions or behaves badly, as you say, it starts to leave its nuclear compartment and it starts to not be able to control the other proteins that it regulates thousands of them that are important for your neurons. So it's what's known as a master regulator? A master regulator. Um, And so you can imagine if you don't have thousands of proteins that make your neurons healthy, those neurons are going to degenerate. So it's not too surprising. And then on top of it, as if that wasn't bad enough, this protein TDP43 starts to form these giant aggregates. We call them aggregates or inclusions. And they accumulate in the brain and your brain has no way to get rid of them. It accumulates, and the garbage disposals that are, that are needed to get rid of them don't work well. And so essentially, all you have is an accumulation of junk protein. Mm-hmm. And this can happen in the spinal cord motor neurons that control your movements. And if that happens, you might get ALS-like symptoms. Sure. Or it can happen in the brain, and you might get cognitive issues, and that would be associated with frontotemporal dementia. And there's even patients that have both. You can have ALS with dementia, or you can have ALS alone, or you can have the dementia alone. 
And a lot of the thinking right now is that TDP43 is the thing that's triggering those neurons to die. And we need to understand why, because you can imagine if we understand why, then we can go back and try to prevent that. So a lot of the effort in my lab is focused on understanding how do we keep TDP43 well-behaved? And the thinking is that if we understand that, then we can develop therapies around that. But it's important to first understand how it behaves badly. So we like to develop models and systems to get it to behave badly. So if we understand all that, we can put it all together and say, will this drug work? Will this drug work? And that's what we're currently doing in the lab. Okay, that makes good sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you, there's another disease that we haven't mentioned yet mm-hmm. that is part of your your work with TDP43 called inclusion body myositis, or IBM, which is right. a handy acronym. Right. Uh, tell, tell us about that. And that's a muscular disorder, correct? Right. So, uh, you know, here I'm talking about this spectrum of disorders from from cognitive issues to motor issues with ALS. And then, again, there's another disorder that's not even a neuron disorder. We call it inclusion body myositis, and this is coming from the muscle fibers themselves. And so imagine how surprising it is to think you've got a neurodegenerative disease protein, and then you look for it in a patient who had a biopsy done for IBM, and they have TDP43. I can only imagine the surprise when this was confirmed in some of the original papers. And so now it's thought that you don't even need to be a neuron to develop this abnormal stuff. You can be a muscle fiber that all of a sudden doesn't work properly because your TDP43 is aggregating in your fibers, Mm -hmm. causing contraction issues. And so a lot of patients with IBM have TDP43 that's it's accumulating. And again, the thinking is that if we can restore that normal function to TDP43, we would restore the muscle's normal function. And so as ironic as this is, we initially set out to study TDP43 in the brain and spinal cord, and what we're doing now is studying it in a muscle. Which is a lot easier, It's a lot easier, Mm -hmm. uh, and it also addresses the question um, just as well because we can make a muscle behave badly, and we can test things like contraction or walking or running, things like that. And so we want to make sure that um, that we attack it from all angles, is what I'm trying to say. We want to attack mm-hmm. this these diseases, this spectrum of diseases, from all angles. And that means muscles, um, the motor issues, and also the cognitive issues. Well, it's it's uh, handy in a way that mm-hmm. these these conditions, these various conditions, all have this one uh, pathology in common. That's right. And I don't mean to say that this is the only cause of those diseases. Sure. I just mean it to say that this is a a common underlying theme. And the idea is that if we can restore the function of this protein with a drug, wouldn't that be handy? Because then you could apply this to multiple diseases. Mm -hmm. And then you could essentially repurpose, which is the word that people like to use, repurpose the same drug for other diseases where it might be effective. Indeed. Well, that, that'll be uh, worth watching as you make progress in these areas. Well, um, Todd, what have you, you and your colleagues found uh, in, in terms of uh, elucidating the mechanism behind this TDP43 transport that you, you talked about from the nucleus mm-hmm. to the cytoplasm? 
uh, and what are the implications of that discovery? Yeah, we, we were surprised to find that this protein um, underwent a, a strange tag, we would call it. A tag or a modification is the way proteins like to communicate in the cell. And what we found was that TDP43 could be tagged by a modification called acetylation. Mm -hmm. And acetylation is uh, similar to phosphorylation, which is commonly um, uh, known, but not a lot of people know about acetylation. And acetylation modifies lysine residues on proteins. And in the case of TDP43, when it got modified, it seemed to promote its aggregation or formation of these inclusions. And, and, and these clumps. These clumps. Mm -hmm. And so here we are trying to understand how this protein behaves badly. And we stumbled in a very um, uh, strange way upon this modification that seemed to promote its clumping. And we said, okay, that, this could be very interesting. Sure. This could be what we want to know. This is and your aha moment. This at that is the point, aha right? moment. <laughs> uh, and over a series of a few months, I'd say, we were really set on figuring out and we did in a series of maybe six months of experiments how acetylation is actually promoting the aggregation of this protein. And so we currently think that your TDP43 is normally okay, but when it gets modified by this acetyl group, it starts to fall apart and this snowball effect starts happening. And so we really want to now block that process. So one of the things we're doing is trying to develop therapies to prevent your TDP43 from becoming abnormally acetylated. Mm -hmm. And we think that'll make it behave properly again. And wouldn't it be great if this could if this could lead to some sort of a drug that we could prevent this modification and make your TDP43 a good guy again. Right. That would be great. So as, as with so many conditions, uh, as we're learning more and more about various mm -hmm. conditions, it comes down to faulty epigenetics. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that um, the, the things that control how your proteins get modified end up dictating your fate. And so what's the machinery in your cells that does that and why does it happen? And I have to say there's a lot of interest in genetics, which, is, 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 which there should be, mm -hmm. but there are also um, environmental and lifestyle um, components that can drive epigenetic changes. And so I think it's tempting for people to think of genetics as a defining factor. Um, and in some ways, that puts you at the mercy of your genetics, right? And, and so people want to know, do I have the gene or do I not? But there are a lot of environmental triggers and risk factors, both protective and not, Right. that can increase or decrease your risk for these diseases. And that's important because it empowers people. I guess we, before we uh, go on, because this is a very important point, just for the sake of the audience, we should define yeah. epigenetics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so epigenetics is just the ability to, um, to change the expression of your proteins at the transcriptional level. And so transcription, meaning your genes make RNAs and your RNAs make proteins. Mm -hmm. And your cells have this amazing ability to control the regulation of those genes. And so at an epigenetic level, you possess the, the, this, um, this machinery that adjusts the level of the gene products. And everyone's a little bit different. 
And so how well you do that could dictate your risk for disease. Indeed. So the, the truth here is that even identical twins are really not identical thanks to epigenetics right. and the life they've led. Right. You know, it's so so fascinating to mm-hmm. to learn more about all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Todd, much much of the work that you've been talking about with TDP forty three uh, was done in vitro or in cell culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit more about those experiments. What types of cells did you use, for example? Yeah, a lot of times, um, you know, the most interesting results for us come out of very simple systems, and sometimes there's a tenden- a tendency to want to work in higher higher level systems uh, and I might argue the opposite that sometimes the simplest approach is the best approach and I guess that's uh, uh, Occam's razor um, this idea that you know sometimes take the simplest approach to address a problem and that should be the best approach and we follow that philosophy and so we might take us a, a cell culture line Um, a a 293 cell, for example, which is a standard laboratory cell line. And we might say, okay, these 293... Are those human cells? They are human cells. They're a human um, uh, kidney cell line. I see. And so they're not a brain cell line, but they're really easy to culture. Mm -hmm. And we also have brain cell lines called like a Neuro2A cell. And Neuro2A cells are very easy to culture. And so we might grow these cells in culture in a dish and ask what happens when we give these cells TDP43. Well, normally it behaves well, and it stays in its nucleus, and that's the way it is in the brain as well, so we can mimic that situation. But what happens when we make that TDP43 acetylated, for example? Well, all of a sudden, in the 293 cells, it starts to behave badly. Okay. Mm -hmm. And a 293 cell is tough. A 293 cell is like the lion equivalent in the animal world. It's tough. It's hard to get your TDP43 to behave badly. So it's almost like we've done the most stringent experiment we could using a cell line that's robust. And so when we see this in a 293 cell, we say, aha, well, we've done it here. Let's see if we can work our way up the difficult tier of models that we can use in the lab. And so I like the philosophy of starting with cell culture mm-hmm. and seeing how things play out and then making our, moving our way up the ladder. So, yeah. So I understand that you've, you've actually moved into some mouse models now, though. Right, right. Mouse modeling is a difficult world for neurodegenerative disease. And the reason is, if you think about it, a mouse would not normally get Alzheimer's disease or ALS or Parkinson's disease. Mice have much different issues. How do I get away from that cat? Or how do I, how do I survive you know, uh, in a hole in the ground? Mice aren't dealt this hand where they get past breeding age and then have to deal with neurodegenerative issues. But yet rodents are a preferred model because they're so easy to handle and they're so easy to, to breed. Mm-hmm. And so the field is faced with this puzzle, which is how do we study neurodegenerative diseases in in systems that would never normally get them. And that's just as good a question. I mean, that's that's not a scientific question. It can be applied to, you know, any any person could have their own thoughts on that and what's a good approach to study these diseases. And at the end of the day, we're going to be faced with how do we study these diseases? Uh, we have been fortunate enough to try to develop new models of this disease, and some of them are mouse models. Okay. And so we can try to mimic IBM, for example, in an animal's muscle. 
and try to see if that muscle shows the hallmark signs of this pathology. And so we can also try to rescue that in, in the, the rodent animal and see if these rodents regain function. All of those things can be done in rodents, and that's the preferred model at this point. I see, and I, I understand that one of your goals is to be able to conduct those types of experiments in so-called wild-type mice. That's right. So if we can if we can do this in just a normal animal, wouldn't that be great? If you could take an animal that would not normally um, show this phenotype and then endow it with that phenotype, because then you're taking a system that would never get it and seeing if we can rescue it with a drug, for example. Mm-hmm. So if we can do that, that would be fantastic. Okay. Well... Todd, let's now hear about some of the work that you've been doing to uh, to seek to identify therapies to treat IBM in particular, which of course may also ultimately apply to ALS. Uh, how are you working to reverse the clumping of these rogue proteins? Yeah, we, we've actually been able to identify a series of proteins that we that are called chaperones that seem to selectively find proteins that clump and it disaggregates them. And disaggregate is just a fancy way of saying, take this clump and break it apart. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we were able to stumble across a certain chaperone called HSF1, uh, which is a master regulator of lots of other chaperones. And when we put HSF1 in cells that had all these clumps of TDP43, we were amazed to see that it essentially brought them down to almost nothing. And so we think that using approaches to either boost your levels of HSF1, this chaperone, this regulator of chaperones, might be an effective therapy to get rid of aggregates in either the muscle or in the brain or spinal cord. So um, we're pursuing this heavily. We're also interested in what HSF1 is doing to other chaperones. How is it activating chaperones to make them want to target TDP43? And I can imagine a day where we have a drug that's given to a patient that has all this TDP43 clumps, and this drug simply boosts your chaperone levels. If you have more chaperones, you have a better ability to keep these clumps at bay. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that that day won't be too far off. I think we'll be able to, to find good drug targets that do this, and we're already showing some promise in the lab. Excellent. Well, that, that's great to hear. And I, I know these things take many years, if not decades. Right. Uh, but, if ever, <laughs> but roughly speaking, where would you say we stand in terms of ultimately leading this into the clinic? Into the clinic, I think that there are going to be a lot of promising drugs in clinical trials. Okay. And there already are for, you know, diseases like Alzheimer's disease. There's a lot of drugs out there and ALS that are showing promise. Uh, and I think it would be too early to comment on, you know, potential cures or, or drugs that really um, take off. But sure. I think it's the best time ever, Ernie, to be doing this type of work. I truly believe that. That guy gets you out of bed every morning, I I, guess. I am as hopeful (laughs) as ever for the drugs and for the approaches that I'm seeing right now to uh, tackle uh, uh, neurodegenerative disease. IBM is a tough one that has not gotten as much um, attention over the years. 
And it could just be because it's a bit rarer than diseases like Alzheimer's disease. But I think now it's on people's radar. Okay. And I think over the next 10 years, we're going to see some pretty spectacular findings. Uh, and I'll hold out to say whether we're going to see cures or not, because I don't, um, you know, it would be too early to say. But I think that I am as hopeful as I've ever been. Well, uh, rest assured, I, I very much hesitate to use the word cure mm -hmm. uh, in not only this area, but other areas as well. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, I, I think it's a much abused word. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, you are listening to Radio In Vivo, and my guest today is Dr. Todd Cohen from UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, well, Todd, let's turn our attention now to your other main line of mm -hmm. research, uh, Alzheimer's disease, and the rogue protein known as tau. Tau is something that I have worked on since 2007. So we're going up on 11 years of studying tau. And it seems like I just printed out 200 papers the other day to learn about what this protein was. Literally 11 years ago, I filled a, 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 a cardboard box with 200 papers to learn about this protein. And I think it triggered an obsession. So if I had to say what's my obsession this, these days, it's tau. Okay. I am obsessed with it because it is a puzzle. It is a riddle. Nobody understands it. Um, it, is, it is the reason it is associated with the cognitive uh, de defects that one sees in Alzheimer's disease. So it is an a important target. Why does it form these massive tangles in brains with Alzheimer's disease? yet it is so perfectly well-behaved in normal individuals. And so it undergoes this transition, this Jekyll and Hyde, and from a normal person where it's normally very soluble is the word we would use, and mm -hmm. well-behaved, to forming these gigantic, hideous, insoluble tangles that, that litter the brain. I could, and which typically only are seen on autopsy. That's right. right? So you can only see these things uh, in you know, post-mortem brain mm -hmm. tissue. I, I'm just sort of enamored with how this protein works because if we understand it, then we can get rid of it or keep it maybe more soluble. And so we've tried to essentially tinker with it. We're essentially protein tinkerers, and we want to play with it and see why it does this and then see what we can do to make it behave correctly. And so I think that this obsession has led us down a road where we've now sort of understand how tau becomes um, aggregated and what factors hit it in just the right way. And what's different in people? What is it about Alzheimer's disease that is different about people that have Pick's disease, for example, which is another type of dementia that has tau uh, inclusions in the brain? Mm -hmm. What is it? And people still don't know this. What is the difference between an Alzheimer patient, a patient that got a head injury that also had tau that accumulated, a patient with Pick's disease. Why are these patients getting tau to accumulate in the brain? And why does it not matter about your genetics? You could take a head injury. So, uh, for example, these football players are in the news a lot lately. Yeah, They have a clinical disease that looks a lot like Alzheimer's disease. How can that be produced after a single or several hits, 
that we can actually see over decades in an Alzheimer's patient. So there's so much we don't know, Ernie. That's why I'm obsessed with it. Okay. We need to figure it out. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you one of the age-old questions related to, to Alzheimer's in particular, uh, you know, and related to tau and uh, beta amyloid plaques which are also accumulate in, in the brains of Alzheimer's people. Um, it, it's long to me been uh, a chicken and egg uh, question whether the accumulations are, are a cause or an effect of, of the disease. And, of course, that has major implications when it comes to potential treatments. Where do you come down on mm-hmm. that given the current state of knowledge? You mean whether uh, whether the pathology that we see is a cause or effect? Correct. Yeah, it's a good question, and it's something that the field has always grappled with. And I think we go to genet- mouse genetics to try to address that. And there's a lot of uh, studies that say if you get rid of tau in an animal that might otherwise get this disease, they then no longer get the symptoms to the to the same extent. So it looks like tau is required for the full progression of the disease. And so knowing that, we say, okay, well, tau is mutated and genetically mutated in people that have dementia. So you can have genetic mutations in tau that lead to disease. And if you get rid of the tau in animal models, you do better. So those are good indications that the tau is doing something to force disease, to trigger disease. So that makes a good argument to then go and tackle tau as a critical target. And a lot of companies are trying to do this. A lot of pharmaceuticals are, are looking towards um, you know, anti-tau therapies and immunotherapies to get rid of bad tau species in the brain. Mm-hmm. And we'll have to hold out until we see the results of those trials. But I think uh, that's that's the way forward, in my opinion. Okay. Well, I understand that uh, you've been doing a lot of experiments in, in human cell culture uh, to show and, and kind of uh, learn more about the inflammatory process mm-hmm. that may be uh, happening in, in Alzheimer's uh, and how that interaction damages neurons. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, inflammation is uh, sort of a hot topic lately. Um, this so to I, speak. <laughs> this, right. This is, a, this is an important... Everyone's known for a long time that inflammation is present in brains that succumb to neurodegenerative diseases, but it's not known how. And so there's this interesting interaction between the immune cells that trigger inflammation in the brain which are called microglia, and then the development of the actual disease in terms of how plaques and tangles start to accumulate. And what we were able to find is that we think that the inflammatory response that's activated in the brain of someone that has plaques might go then spawn the accumulation of tau in those same brains. And so we think there's this, we might call it a triad, plaques, inflammation, and tau. Somehow these things are all working together, and we're starting to piece those things together. Okay. And Mm -hmm. so we think that when your brains are inflamed, that's typically, if it's chronic, not a good thing. Sure. And so we want to find ways to keep yours, mine, and everyone listening, all of our brains, as, as less inflamed as possible. We think if you do that, 
you'll reduce the inflammation that's leading to the formation of these tau, this tau pathology, these clumps. And so how we do that is another question. And so there are also a lot of therapies to, to dampen neuroinflammation in the brain. And so we'll see how they pan out as well. I was kind of trying to lead you into the territory of talking about this very interesting process uh, that, that you work on called neuritic beading mm-hmm. uh, in, in this inflammatory process where these beads form and lead to a, a cascade of, of tau and, and calcium coming in and lots of bad bad things going on. Yeah, when we expose these neurons to inflammatory triggers, all of a sudden we're able to see hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease playing out in these neurons in, that are in culture. And so we think the inflammation is promoting the formation of these neuritic beads that accumulate like pearls on a string in, along the processes of the neurons. And those are associated with impaired neuron function and cognitive decline. So we think we've highlighted a, a, a mechanism, is what we would call it, by which inflammation is one event that triggers the formation of this tau pathology, this tau clumping. And so if we can prevent inflammation, we restore tau to not clump. It now, start, it now coats the axons of your neurons in a very well-behaved manner. So wouldn't that be great if we can just an- use anti-inflammatories to prevent microglia from exerting their chronic neuroinflammatory effects and then restore your tau to its normal function? That's what we're testing right now in the lab. I see. And, and, and how, what kind of uh, agents are you, using, are you testing uh, to try to generate that? Yeah, and so in our, in our previous study, we were able to show that one one factor that contributed significantly to the inflammation was called MMP9. This is a metalloproteinase that appears to activate this inflammatory cascade, and we identified it in a, in a protein screen. And so now we have a target. And so when we treat with inhibitors of MMP9 or get rid of MMP9, maybe we can prevent this inflammation. And maybe that will translate into a more well-behaved tau. Mm-hmm. And so that's just one example of a target that we're going that, that we've been working on. There are many other targets that promote inflammation in the brain. And so if we can find the ones that do it in the most robust manner, maybe those will be really good targets to go after. Sure. So now that we have models to do this, I think the future is bright to sort of connect all these pieces: inflammation, plaques, and tangles. Can we develop models to incorporate all that? Boy, I'd love to do that. And we're on our way. Well, good. Yeah. <laughs> Let's uh, best wishes for uh, great success. Have with me that, back next know? year and I'll give you an update, Ernie. Well, good. I'll probably be taking your drug by then. Okay. <laughs> um, it's, it's wonderful to hear that there is such optimism and hope in this area because, you know, we've certainly been hearing for several years with the uh, aging of the baby boomer population that uh, Alzheimer's in particular is going to be a very uh, expansive uh, disease in the coming uh, years and decades, just in terms of population. Yeah, the numbers, the uh, the projected numbers are staggering. I think by 2050, you're looking at... um, uh, you know, upwards of, of, of 20 million people in the country 
with Alzheimer's disease. I mean, this is no longer a medical and scientific discussion. It's a, a what are we going to do with all of those people? Uh, who's going to take care of them? So we need a plan, uh, and we need a plan pretty quickly in terms of how we're going to take care of them, what we're going to treat these people with, and how we're going to fund how are we going to fund laboratories to work on important uh, problems like this so that we can develop those drugs? That needs to happen now mm-hmm. because in the, ne- the next few decades are going to be critical. Absolutely. Well, that leads me to a, another question I wanted to ask you about, kind of a, away from the uh, specifics of uh, your research. But generally speaking, do you think that drug discovery and development are moving more into academic laboratory settings such as yours uh, as the pharmaceutical industry appears to have all but abandoned Mm -hmm. research and development. What are your thoughts on that situation? Yeah, I think it's unfortunate if they do, uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, Academic laboratories are not as equipped as pharmaceuticals to do these really large-scale screens Mm -hmm. and really identify effective drugs. Uh, There's just not the resources and funding to do that in an academic laboratory. And in my opinion, in an ideal world, we work together. The laboratories find, set up interesting um, screens and interesting models and interesting platforms that they can then work with pharmaceuticals to uncover new drugs. That, to me, seems like the best way forward. And when I see companies abandoning um, their neurodegenerative efforts, uh, that's not good. I think that we need more, not less. And we need them to come to the table and work um, collaboratively with labs like mine and other labs that are trying to understand this. I don't think that it's feasible for labs like mine to have the resources and the facilities to do drug screening and that at that level. So I hope people don't leave. I hope pharmaceuticals don't leave this field. We need it now more than ever. So, um, and the other thing that people don't always realize is academic labs are so collaborative. And, you know, especially, I mean, I know being at UNC, labs are so collaborative. It doesn't take more than a single conversation to spark a new experiment or a new screen that can identify new drugs. And people realize that we need to be in this together and do it collaboratively or it's not going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and some a trend I've been noting over the last several years uh, at UNC and, and Duke and NC State and all, mm-hmm. all of the major research universities is, is they all seem to be becoming much more aware of that situation and, and have resources devoted to establishing collaborations with industry. Absolutely. Um, I have gone out to Research Triangle Park, and I've personally, um, you know, given talks at Biogen, for example, and I see the, the, the type of collaborative environment that's there. I see the type of people that want to engage academics, and I happen to be fortunate to be in the middle of a thriving environment with Research Triangle Park, Duke, and NC State. I have collaborators at all of those. And so to be that lucky to be in an area that's that collaborative just means that we can move these ideas forward. And I think that there should be more venues for all of us to get together and discuss these sort of ideas more. I think that's sort of something that we're currently working on. Sounds good. Um, 
it's it's interesting to watch those those trends. Do you think, you know, you've you've uh, expressed a great deal of optimism about the situation with neurodegenerative diseases, uh, and I've had other other guests who have said, you know, roughly the same thing, uh, ALS in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that we'll be able to prevent that dire situation that you? talked about uh, the, the the high incidence and by say 2050 that that do you think we're going to head all that off um i i think so i think between now and 2050 i think that there are some amazing things in the works immunotherapy for example um to use antibodies to deplete some of those these bad actors is such a pro- it's showing such promise mm-hmm. anti-sense technology to give someone an injection uh, and use that that antisense oligo to then deplete your expression of whatever bad actor. These things are very promising right now, and there's a lot of buzz and excitement in the field. And you can imagine, given given enough, given the next few decades, they're going to become better and optimize these approaches. And I just think there might be things out there that we can't even conceive yet, but the ideas were generating leads. And how do you generate leads? You need people to come together. You need think tanks. You need people to come together, exchange ideas, generate new hypotheses. When that happens, you know, it really needs, it's a joint effort. You need people from different approaches. It doesn't have to be people in neurodegenerative disease. Sometimes there, there are people that are outside the field that have a great idea that then spark a new idea. Sure. And that's what we need. Okay. Well, I, I also wanted to ask you, Todd, about uh, the possible uh, application of uh, CRISPR mm-hmm. uh, and even gene therapy uh, to treat or, or potentially prevent some of these disorders. Yeah, I think that um, CRISPR is a good example of a technology that could really lead to some some therapies. Not only that, but it also is generating new models that didn't exist. So we can use CRISPR as a way to modify the genome. And if we can modify the genome, we might be able to create new models that the field didn't know were doable. We're doing that right now in our lab. And then we can then go in with CRISPR and modify as a therapy. And so we can both use CRISPR in multiple capacities now. We can generate new models of ALS or Alzheimer's disease. We can also go in, take a target, a, a lead that looks interesting, use CRISPR, and then cure that that model of that disease. And so I think that that's going to be one of the things that we're the whole field is looking forward to, use of CRISPR in both a modeling and a therapeutic context. I, I had uh, Rudolf Barangu uh, mm-hmm. on, on the show from NC State, okay. and he's one of the pioneers of, of mm-hmm. CRISPR uh, and, and now editor of a new journal devoted exclusively to CRISPR. And we should uh, explain that CRISPR is actually a new, really new technology of editing genes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talked about the CRISPR craze, uh, and apparently it's still going strong. Yeah, I think it's 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 really has a lot of promise. So um, we're we're, try, we're we're doing some pilot experiments uh, using CRISPR, and next time I come on, I'll give you the latest. Well, and another uh, hot topic in in microbiology these days, of course, is the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Uh, have have you or or any of your colleagues started looking into potential connections there between our microbiomes 
and these kind of uh, diseases. You know, we, that's a field that we have sort of um, admired from afar uh, and haven't actually gotten into yet, but I have to say I'm amazed at the notion that you can actually take the microbiome from a healthy individual or from an avid cyclist in one article and give that microbiome to a diseased individual or a diseased animal and they get better. Mm -hmm. And so how that's working to me, it's just fascinating. And so we've, we've thought about ways that we can tackle this problem. Haven't gotten there yet, but I'm, I, I, that is an, an area we haven't discussed yet, but I'm glad you brought it up. I think there's a lot of potential there as well. Definitely. So several new areas of potential exploration Mm -hmm. for you to look at in the future. And I know you've kind of already alluded to it, but I I often like to conclude these interviews with the general question of where where is your research going from here? Yeah, I think that um, what we're doing is trying to use these, these models that we're developing as a way to generate new drug targets to um, suppress the toxic pathology that one sees in either the muscle, the brain, or the spinal cord in the case of motor neuron disease. And so we think that by focusing on the, on the critical pathology that accumulates, we can develop new areas to, to tackle these diseases. So I hope when I come back, I have a list of drugs that are effective against these diseases. Hopefully that'll be the case. Okay, that sounds great. Well, Todd, our time together has just flown by. I want to thank you for joining me today on Radio In Vivo and wish you the best of luck for continued success in your groundbreaking research on neurodegenerative diseases. Thanks for having me, Ernie. Appreciate it. We've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio In Vivo. You can check the website, radioinvivo.net, or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science Community right here on volunteer-powered WCOM-FM, Carborough, and Chapel Hill. And if you enjoy this show, we ask that you support the radio station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and make a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. We thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time.